We're in Hebrews chapter 11. Would you join me in prayer one more time? Heavenly Father, our gracious God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that understands to perceive by faith the realities that exist beyond this world. And as your word is proclaimed by your spirit, we ask that you would grow faith in us, in our hearts, the assured certainty of who you are and what you promise us. Show us Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you remember when you first moved to the UAE? When you first arrived in Abu Dhabi, some of you had a job offer, you had a contract, and you knew you were coming here for work. Others, maybe not. But every one of you, you had a ticket. You had an airline ticket uh, that told you you're going to come. Some of you maybe had visited before. Many of you had not even visited this place. You had your ticket. You knew you were going. You had never seen Abu Dhabi, but you knew there was this real place on the map. Maybe you'd looked at pictures on the internet, and your airline ticket was the guarantee that you would get here. And that ticket completely shaped the way that you lived in the days leading up to that transition. Some of you sold things, maybe said goodbye to family and friends, changed certain things in your life and got ready to move. You packed your bags. You were convinced that a place called Abu Dhabi really exists, that your ticket would get you there, and you lived in such a way that you were going to make that journey. And then you got off the airplane, and here you were, Happy Sandiversary, welcome to the city in the desert. Well, today, we return to the letter to the Hebrews, and we enter that great hall of faith, as it is called, the hall of faith's heroes. And we begin to see here what faith is and how it shapes our lives. And what we'll see is that faith is the ticket that convinces us of our unseen destination. It tells us where we're going and the fact that we're going to get there. It makes those things real to us and therefore shapes how we should live our lives. And this morning as we consider what Hebrews says about faith, brothers and sisters, I want us to feel the confident certainty that faith provides and therefore pursue the commendation that God gives to all who seek Him in faith. We're going to look at three challenges of faith that grow us in certainty and confidence from these opening verses of Hebrews 11. Three challenges of faith. But first, let's read the text. Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Three challenges of faith in Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 7. First, this text calls us to see faith's character. We must see faith's character. Now we've been out of uh, the letter to the Hebrews for a while and I want to recap some context for you. Remember this letter was originally a sermon. It was a sermon preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation, a church of Christians from a Hebrew background who had grown weary and lethargic in their faith. These Jewish Christians were facing all kinds of persecution and suffering, afflictions for their belief in Christ. And because of those afflictions, they had been tempted to go astray, to turn away from Christ and go back to the Jewish religion. And throughout the letter, the author seeks to convince them, convince us, that Jesus is better. He shows us that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament, all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. He is our better high priest who makes intercession for us. He is our perfect sacrifice who takes away sins. He has inaugurated a new and better covenant through which we draw near to God and there is salvation in no one and nowhere else but in Christ. And therefore, the author admonishes these heroes, he admonishes us, hold on to Jesus in faith. Don't give up. Keep holding on to him. There are numerous warnings throughout this letter, throughout this sermon, of the disastrous consequences and the judgment anyone would face for turning away from Christ, for abandoning him. And that's where the author is leading us today. After laying out in several chapters that Jesus is better, he ends chapter 10 by reminding us, you just don't need to hold on to Jesus for a little while longer because he is coming soon and will reward those who have trusted him. Did you see uh, just a few verses earlier there in chapter 10? He says, you have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised Yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. And he gives this great uh, verse from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous, my righteous one, shall live by faith. You will live, you will attain eternal life, preserve your soul from God's judgment by enduring to the end, holding on in faith. In other words, Hebrews is telling us there is this destination, this heavenly city, the new world that God has prepared for those who love him. And Christ has gone ahead and entered that new creation, that heavenly city on our behalf, preparing the way for us. And here is the ticket that guarantees that you'll get there. Here is the ticket that guarantees that that's real. Faith. 
So what is faith? And what does it look like in the lives of God's people? That's what chapter 11 addresses. And he begins by showing us faith's character. What is this thing that we call faith? How does it work? Well, we see that in verse 1. And I personally think a far better translation of this verse is what we see in the old King James Version, the KJV. KJV says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Or even better, the new Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. In other words, faith substantiates, gives evidence that there is a reality beyond this world and that by trusting God, we will get there. That's what faith is. It's trust in what God says. It's the guarantee of what's coming. It's the certainty that you're living on the basis of what is real. And that then shapes how you live. That's what the author shows us throughout this chapter. He shows us again and again in chapter 11, in each hero of faith that we see from the Old Testament, how faith, the reality that they believed in, affected their lives. He takes us through the entire flow of the redemptive plan of God from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, working through the ages. And he gives us many examples of endurance in suffering. And he says, what was their secret? Well, the secret was they lived by faith. How did they endure all that suffering? By faith. We see him begin right here in verse 4. Notice, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. And again and again throughout the chapter, you'll see it repeated 18 times. Those two words, by faith, are repeated 18 times in this chapter. What was their secret? How did they endure through suffering? Well, they endured because of their confident trust in the power, the presence, and the promises of God. They believed in the reality of his existence, the reality of his reward, and that shaped their lives. He's saying to the early Christians who were listening to this, you're not alone in your suffering. Many of others have suffered the same way. But they trusted in this reality, and so should you. So should we. Faith makes real in the present the promises that God has given concerning the future. It shows you what you cannot see, the reality that you cannot see, and then says to you, now live in light of that reality. One person explained it this way. You think of two men on a ship, and the ship is drifting on the open sea for days, through fog, much like we had this morning, so it's difficult to see. And one of them says, oh, we're going to alight on land. Land is coming. I, I see our destination. And the other says, I see nothing. And how does this person see land in the distance? Well, he has a telescope through which he's looking. And that telescope enables him to see what the others cannot see. Faith is that telescope. It's the telescope that brings the future promises of God into present focus. Or it's like when you've been on the airline, on the airplane, 
and someone says, we're going to land soon. And you say, well, how do you know? I don't see it. Well, that person has a window seat. And through the window, they see the city approaching. Faith is that window. Faith is the ticket, as I've said, that confirms to you the reality of your destination. It gives reality to the objects of hope, which would otherwise seem to be unreal. It's the task of faith to make what is unseen as real in your life as what is seen. And so as one person said, faith enables you to confidently and peacefully walk into an unseen future supported by the word of God. Did you see that here in Noah's life in verse 7? Noah, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah trusted in things that he did not see and confidently shaped his life accordingly. Faith is not a vague optimism. You know, a lot of people, we think about hope and Christians have hope. Well, the whole world has a kind of hope. Everybody hopes that the world will get better. A lot of people hope for life after death. But that hope, dear friends, just kind of an optimistic outlook, is useless. Without belief in the God of creation and new creation, if we don't trust in the one true God who raised Jesus from the dead and who gives life to the dead, then your hope is nothing but a vague and general optimism and it's useless unless you trust in this God and his promises. I also want to clarify this because sometimes we get confused. Some people reduce faith to just feelings, right? That faith is some sort of religious feeling that we have, what we feel in our hearts. I feel this is real. But faith is not just based in feelings. No, faith is based on facts, on reality. What's most important is not what we feel, What's most important is what God has said and the fact that he and his promises are real and that we can bank our lives upon them and rely upon the reality of all that he says. So I want to ask you this morning, dear friends, what are you relying upon? What is it that drives your life, your choices right now? You know, some of you are going through very intense suffering, just like these people were to whom this letter was written. Some of you are going through great disappointment, had your hopes and dreams shattered. Some of you are living through the very difficult trial of uncertainty concerning the future or regret concerning the past. Maybe you're in a season of temptation or even wandering and drifting from the Lord. And the word of God asks you this morning, do you trust in the reality of God's promises? Do you bank your life on the future hope he has promised to all who trust in him? Are you living your life based on your mere feelings 
or are you basing your life on the reality that exists beyond this world? The reality that is certain, though it is unseen. Friends, we see the reality that faith places before our eyes, and that's what enables us to endure suffering in this life. And it's not just any reality. It's not something made up. It's not a vague general reality that we grasp by faith. No, these are very specific realities that we bank our lives upon. Realities concerning who God is, his power, his presence, his promises. And that leads to our second challenge concerning faith today. Not only must we see faith's character, but second, we must stand in faith's conviction. You must stand in the conviction of faith. Now, each of the examples that we see here in verses 1 to 7 shows us a certain reality that must be believed concerning God. First, faith convinces us of the reality of God's power. Did you see verse 3? Look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith understands, comprehends the reality that God is our almighty creator and that he made this world, he made you and me. This entire universe is under his lordship. How do we know? How do we prove that? Well, it's a conviction that we see and stand in By faith. Faith sees the reality that our world is created by God and he created it out of nothing by his word. What is invisible, God's word, created everything that is visible, the universe. That's how the Bible begins. The Bible begins with a statement of faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God spoke and the entire universe came into existence. You know, sometimes we struggle, I'm sure, in schools for the kids here, teenagers or universities and others of us have often faced this kind of challenge that faith is not compatible with science. That science somehow is over here and faith must be separated by, from that. It's just kind of a religious idea that can't jive with science. And I want to say nothing could be further from the truth. If you define science rightly, what is science? Science is a discipline that observes the world around us and through inquiry and experimentation makes observations, a fact concerning the world. So, faith, on the other hand, understands this world in a way that science doesn't. For instance, science may say the universe came into existence through a big bang because there's all of this residue radiation out there somewhere, background radiation that indicates that there was some massive explosion and the world came into existence. Well, how did that big bang take place? Science cannot observe or state that. It does not explain the origins of the universe. 
Faith explains what science doesn't. And it's perfectly rational. And we know, notice that the, the word that is used there, by faith we understand. In fact, the only way we can do science is by believing. We believe this is God's world. We believe we are created in God's image with a mind to look at the world and make observations and therefore give glory to God for what we see. Some of the greatest scientists throughout the history of the world have been Christians or those who believe in creation of the world by God. Listen to what Johannes Kepler says. Kepler was the man who first observed uh, the planets going in elliptical orbits around the sun. He was the one who discovered that. And Kepler, when he observed this, which no other man had seen before, says this, I give thanks to thee, O Lord, creator, who has delighted me with thy makings. In the works of thy hands I have exulted. We must not confuse science with materialism or naturalism. See, naturalism, science is a discipline that is compatible with faith. Naturalism is a worldview or a religion in itself. What is naturalism? Naturalism is the view that says the only thing that exists is what you can see and touch. And there cannot be anything outside that. Well, how do you prove that? You can't. They have a certain kind of faith. Faith enables us to understand and to be convinced of and to see God's infinite power. Not only does it convince us of God's power, faith also convinces us of God's presence, of his existence. Did you see what he says there in verse 6? He says in the middle of the verse, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. The one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he is, as Francis Schaeffer famously put it, the God who is there. He is there and he is not silent. Abel, Enoch, Noah, all of the rest of the people that we see in this chapter, this is what shaped their lives, the certain reality that God existed they were convinced of this. Though they could not see him, they staked their lives on his existence. Can you imagine Enoch? It says Enoch walked with God. He's walking in relationship with an unseen God. Abel is offering sacrifice to a God that he cannot see. He's bringing the best of his flocks and, uh, and herds, putting it to death and burning it on the altar saying, I worship this God. He believes he exists. Noah staked his life upon and faced ridicule for a God whom he believed, whom he could not see. You notice that he says, whoever would draw near to God, you remember we've seen that phrase, draw near to God, throughout Hebrews. It's a phrase used for worshipping God. You cannot truly worship God unless you believe that he's there. You cannot please him unless you believe that he exists. Simply coming and doing religious things and going through the motions with no conviction in your heart that God really exists is useless and fruitless and actually brings judgment upon you. Faith means being truly convinced of his presence, of what his word says, of his self-revelation concerning himself. That's what enables us to walk with him, to live for him, to worship him. But that's not enough. Not only must we be convinced of his power and presence, most importantly, we must be convinced of his promises. Faith convinces us of God's 
promises that he is true to his word. Did you see verse 7? Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah believed the reality of what God told him. God said it, and so for Noah, it was true. And these events were yet unseen. God promised that judgment was coming. And people had no categories for that. No one had ever seen a worldwide flood, that there would be such heavy rain and downpour that it would flood the entire world and wipe out all of life. People scoffed and ridiculed Noah. They laughed at him. What's wrong with you? Why are you building this big boat? Are you crazy? A worldwide flood that's going to wipe out everyone? You must be mad. But with faith as his telescope, Noah believed the reality of what was coming. He trusted God's word. He feared God and not man. And it shaped how he lived. And just like Noah lived in a time when people scoffed at him and ridiculed him because of his preparation for the coming judgment, we live in that kind of a day, don't we? People around us, we warn of judgment to come. Christians live our lives in light of the coming judgment and people think we're crazy. You talk about the judgment of hell, of eternal fire, and people think you're intolerant. Well, those realities are certain. They are to shape how we live because we trust God's word and what he has promised to do. But more than even God's promises of judgment, dear friends, notice that each of the people in this section trusted in God's promise of something better. They lived for God's approval and his reward. And that leads to our third and final challenge of faith this morning. We must see faith's character. Second, we stand in faith's conviction. And third, you must seek faith's commendation. We live for the commendation of God that comes by faith. Did you notice the common thread between the various persons in the text this morning? Each of them was commended by God. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 7, Noah, by, by what he did, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That righteousness is God's commendation, his declaration of righteousness. In fact, the author says this is true of everybody in this chapter. He says that in verse 2. By it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Did you notice the emphasis on commendation? God's commendation. And that's what he says in verse 6. Without faith... It is impossible to please God, to receive his commendation. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
We see this so clearly in Abel's life and the contrast between Abel and Cain that's given us there. Abel offered, by faith Abel offered to God, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. If you go back to Genesis 4, it tells us Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd, and then the text says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And you know, various theories had popped up as to why the Lord preferred Abel's offering over Cain. Sometimes people will say it's because of the kind of offering, because Abel offered animal sacrifices, which are prescribed by God and foreshadow Christ, but Cain just brought fruit of the ground. I am not convinced of that. I don't think that's accurate. I think the kind of offerings just reflects their occupation. Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. In fact, later in the book of Leviticus, God prescribes grain offerings. So he has no problem with that. A slightly better thesis, I think much better thesis, closer to the mark, is concerning the quality of their offerings. Cain brought just some fruit. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the best part of them, the fat portions. He brought his best. But we have to go even deeper. What is it that drives Abel to bring the firstborn and the fat portions, the best of his flock? Well, it's his faith. He's coming to God, seeking God's approval. He's not just going through the motions. The Lord looks on the heart, not just what you do externally. Friends, Christianity is not a just-do-it religion. If you just show up and do what you need to do without trust that God is going to be pleased with you and living for His approval, if you show up and do what you want to do just for the approval of men, God hates that kind of religion. That's like Cain. And the Lord will have no regard for it. No, Abel trusted in God, in who he is, and his character, and his promise of reward for those who seek him. And that's why he was commended. And his witness goes on as an example throughout the Bible. It's the same with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So if you read that chapter, Genesis 5, you'll see every guy is dying. They live for hundreds of years, and then the end is, and he died, and he died, and he died. Enoch walked with God, and he was not found. They sent out the search party, could not find a body. God took him. He didn't taste death. Why? Because he lived for God's approval, because he pleased God and walked with God by faith. The same with Noah. Noah trusted in the reality of which God spoke. He lived in the obedience that comes from faith. And what does God say? He was declared righteous. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So this is the reward that God promises to all who would seek him. These are the rewards. First, God's declaration of righteousness. He commends those who trust him. He approves on us, stating that we have pleased him. And this sets us free, brothers and sisters. Any of you struggle with people-pleasing? All of us do, right? To a great extent. The fear of man, worrying about what other people think. And, and then you want the approval of these persons or that person. And so you try to figure out how you should talk or what you should do. Or maybe if I do this, maybe if I look a certain way, they'll be happy. And then we try to shape our lives according to this. We want the likes on Facebook. 
And it's so hard sometimes to figure out how to please somebody. But the Lord frees you from that and he says, live for my approval. Live in the fear of God and not the fear of man. And the fear of God will set you free from the fear of man because you are living to please the one who commends those who trust him. And he doesn't leave you with any kind of riddles or any kind of mystery about what you should do. He makes it very clear. He says, believe on me and my promises and I will declare you righteous. I commend you. Not only is there a reward of God's declaration of righteousness, there is the reward of God's promise of resurrection. That's what Enoch's life looks forward to. This man, while everybody around him was dying, did not die. And that's a promise of a reward that when we trust God, death is not the final word for us. God rules over death. And the risen Christ promises resurrection life to all who trust him. But the greatest reward is not just a declaration of righteousness or the promise of a resurrection and defeat of death. The greatest reward is God himself and life with him forever where we will behold his face and live in his glorious reality. We receive this reward of being declared righteous, of being freed from death, of relationship with God himself by faith, by trusting in the certain realities of God's word. And then the obvious question is, how is it that God can account those who are guilty to be righteous? How is it that he can free sinners like us from the penalty that we deserve, the penalty of death? How is it that sinners can receive this reward? And again, we see that attested by the lives of each of these persons in chapter 7. Abel offered sacrifice, showing that one day a sacrifice would come that would take away sin, not only that, as the righteous, innocent man being put to death by the wicked, his life foreshadows the righteous son of God who would come and be put to death by wicked sinners who would shed his blood, not bringing condemnation on those sinners, but bringing eternal life and freedom from sin for all who would repent from sin and trust in him. Enoch's life points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was taken up and did not taste death points forward to the Son of God who came and died, but defeated death, rose again victorious, and was taken up into heaven as King and Lord, and he promises resurrection and entry into his eternal kingdom for all who trust him. Noah built an ark to save his household from the coming judgment of God. Jesus comes and offers himself in death as the penalty for sin, giving salvation, as himself being the ark who would save us from coming judgment for all who trust him. And if you have not trusted this Christ and received his declaration of righteousness, I want to summon you today to trust in him. Christ is the reality that exists beyond this world. We receive him by faith, dear friend, What are you banking your life upon? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises and the realities that we see by faith. By the power of your spirit and by your work in us, may we live our lives in light of this reality. In Jesus' name, amen.